Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, we'll read from verse 23 to verse 33. 23 to 33. Verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faithfulness. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. You blind guides! who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within, full of dead man's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, And you say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that you are the children of those who killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this powerful and indicting passage that Jesus spoke against the Pharisees. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our understanding and help us to see how timeless these words are, and they're not to be relegated to a time of the distant past, Lord. Help us to see what Jesus is saying and not to misunderstand his meaning. Help us to um, remove far away uh, from us distractions and stereotypes And help us to understand, Lord, what's truly being said here and what you want us to know today. Thank you that we have the privilege of reading these words and from hearing from you directly. Thank you that you've spoken to us because you love us and your word sets us free. So bless us this morning, Lord, as we look at this passage in Jesus' name for your great honor and glory, and for your name's sake, we pray. Amen. In the 2004 Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece, a new world record was set in the super heavyweight weightlifting uh, division or sport. A new world record was set. Do you know who it was? Most of us probably aren't that into super heavyweight weightlifting, but... uh, it was the Iranian Hossein Reza Zadeh. He's a uh, national hero in his country for winning two gold medals at the, at the Olympic Games in 2004. And he set the world record by lifting a whopping 580 pounds over his head. That's about this, the weight of a large black bear. He lifted that over his head. 580 pounds. So you ever wondering how much those heavyweight guys lift That's about it, although that's the max. 580 pounds. They call him the Iranian Hercules. He's famous in Iran. He was named in 2004 the strongest man in the world, Hossein Reza Zadeh. So now we know what human beings at this time are capable of lifting, right? They're capable of lifting about 580 pounds. That's the standard. Reza Zadeh set the standard at 580. Now, since that's the standard, and since that is what we know human beings are capable of lifting, my question I would ask uh, ask you this morning is, would it therefore be right for us to require that standard from every young weightlifter? So you want to be a weightlifter, huh? Well, here's the standard, 580. You can't do that. You don't impress us. 
Should we boo high schoolers when they, when they have their competitions? And, uh, you know, the winner lifts, I don't know how much, but certainly not 580. And should everyone say, well, he lifted 580 at the Olympics. Boo on you. You stink. You didn't meet the standard. What do you guys think? Should we, should we treat people that way? Just because the standard has been set. No, of course not. We, we, ex, we only expect people to do what they can, and we praise them accordingly. So when a high school student lifts what he can, and he wins the competition, everyone applauds and says, what an amazing uh, competition that was. He did such a great job, and he, he did more than, you know, he really gave his 100%. This is great. We encourage him. We don't beat him down and say, you're not the strongest man in the world. We know who that is. <laughs> Go home. <clears throat> we don't do that, right? Now, that seems reasonable. And this is the way that many people see God's law. And they think this is how God's law works. They say this, well, Jesus set the standard. Like the Iranian Hercules. Jesus set the standard. He came to earth. He lived the perfect life. That's what, you know, the standard is. <clears throat> but we're not expected to meet it. Because God knows that we can't do it. You know, we're just like high schoolers compared to uh, Hossein. We're just high schoolers, and we just do what we can. We can't do what Jesus did because he was the Son of God. And we just do what we're able, and God praises us accordingly. You know, Jesus, he's the long-term goal, right? He's just the long-term goal. Just like that high schooler in high school, he's only expected to do so much. He's not expected to do that. Uh, Olympic lifting yet. That's his long-term goal. And for you and I, perfection is just the long-term goal. We'll, we'll reach it, you know, maybe a billion years into eternity or something. But not here, not now. We are not expected by God to be perfect. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever felt that before? Do you believe that right now? It sounds good, right? Especially when you compare it to this example I've given with weightlifting, it sounds reasonable, it sounds humane. It almost sounds inhumane to tell, to, uh, tell someone that God expects you to be perfect. <clears throat> and most would think so. Many people think that. But brothers and sisters, this morning I'd like to say that as disciples of Christ, we cannot accept this anti-Christian doctrine. This is an anti-Christian idea that says Jesus set the standard, but we're not expected to meet that. We're not expected to be perfect before God. God only expects us to do what we can. We can't do that, but we can do uh, a lesser, we can meet a lesser standard, and God expects that, and when we meet that, <clears throat> then he accepts us and gives us praise for that. That is an anti-Christian doctrine. Number one, such thinking completely does away with the need for the cross of Christ, right? Completely does away with the, you know what? God doesn't even expect you to be perfect. He just expects you to meet a lesser standard, which you can meet. So meet it, and you're good. What do you need the cross of Christ for. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this, If righteousness could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Right? If you could be righteous in God's sight by what you do, Christ died for nothing. If we can lower the standard and say, here's the standard that God requires in order for you to be right with him, it's not perfection, don't worry, you can meet this one. And you just got to meet it. Then what do you need Jesus for, right? What do you need Jesus for? You know, the way most people think these days is, you don't need to be perfect, you just need to try, right? Well, okay, just try, what do you need Jesus for? You're trying, right? That's all God, that's all God expects, just try. You know, people say, you know, you know, I'm a good person, I don't kill anybody, you know, I don't steal. I, you know, take care of my parents when they get old. I'm a good person. I vote, I do these things, and that's all God. That's all God requires of me, right? Just to be a good person, a good citizen, a good son, good son-in-law. <clears throat> well, if that's all God requires, what do you need Jesus for, right? 
What do you need the cross for? What do you need Christ coming and dying for if righteousness comes by what you do? So that's the first reason why this is anti-Christian doctrine. Secondly, it's contrary to Scripture. It's plainly contrary to Scripture in both the law and the prophets and the teaching of Christ and the apostles. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 13, the law explicitly says, You shall be perfect with the Lord your God. You shall be perfect with the Lord your God. That is what is commanded of us in the law. God requires perfection. And if you were to say, well, okay, yes, it does say that in the law that God requires us to be perfect, but that's kind of just a long-term goal, right? He's not expecting us to be perfect now. That's just a long-term goal. Then I would remind you that the scripture tells us that Noah and Job and Abraham were perfect men, doesn't it? The first time anyone is ever called righteous explicitly in the Bible, not that he's the first person who's ever righteous, we know Abel was, <clears throat> is Noah. And it says Noah was a righteous man perfect before the Lord. Job was a righteous man and perfect before God. And God told Abraham to walk before me and be perfect. That's what God requires in order to be with him. Perfection is required in the law, and it's no long-term goal, because you've got guys in Scripture who are perfect. So what excuse do we have? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, summarized his teaching by saying, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He didn't use the word become in the Greek. He used the word be, right now, be perfect, as... Your Father in heaven is perfect, and your Father in heaven is not working at being perfect, is he? Be perfect as he's perfect all the time. <clears throat> he is morally perfect. So it's contrary to Scripture to think this way. And the third reason it's anti-Christian is it fails to distinguish between a moral and an amoral situation. Let me explain. If we look at a high school student, a high school weightlifter, and we say, I want you right now to lift 580 pounds because that's the standard. That's what human beings are capable of doing. That's what the Iranian Hercules did. <clears throat> so you have to lift that. Now that student might say, okay, and they put the 580 pound weight there, and that student tries with all of his might, right? And he sincerely wants to lift it, and he gives it his best shot. He doesn't want to not lift it. He wants to lift it. And he can't. He's simply not able. He's not capable of doing it. This is an, It's not a, a moral situation here. He's just physically incapable of doing it. He didn't sin by not lifting it, right? You say, well, you tried and you failed. But you didn't disobey me, right? You didn't disobey your coach. You said, I told you to lift it. You're not obeying me. I can't, right? And that's not how it is with the law of God. If that's how it was with the law of God, if God's law was given to us and he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, I sincerely want to and I'm going to give it my best shot, but I can't, God. You have given me a commandment that I can't fulfill. I want to fulfill it and I can't. And it's not my disobedience that's making me not do it. I'm not being disobedient to you, God. I'm not wanting to disobey here. I'm wanting to do it. You just gave me a command I can't keep. If that's the case, then you're not even a sinner. Right? You're not even a disobedient person. And in, fact, in fact, it would be God who would be the evil one for giving you a rule and then punishing you for not being able to do, do it when he knew you weren't able to. Right? But what does the Bible teach us about sin? Sin is disobedience to God. Sin it brings guilt and the punishment of death. And God is a just God. And the reason why God punishes us for our sins is because we are responsible for our sins. All sin, brothers and sisters, and you can relate with this and understand this in your own conscience because your own conscience will accuse you when you do things that you know are wrong. All sin is a choice that you make to disobey God. And the reason why you feel ashamed and the reason why you feel guilty 
Why we feel this when we sin is because we're aware of the fact that we're disobeying God when we sin, right? It's not that we're just trying to obey and it's all God's fault. It was my fault. I could have done different. Just ask yourself, how different would your day be if you always made the right moral choices? Just ask, I mean, there's a lot of moral choices to make, but just think of a few that you could make in one day, right? You could make them just throughout the day. Every day everyone's day is a little different. But when a moral situation arises, and here's the right thing to do, and here's the loving thing to do, and here's the wrong thing to do, if you just always made the right choice, how different do you think your day would be? It would be way different, wouldn't it? One of the reasons why our days are so bad is because we're making so many bad moral choices, right? We are responsible for the choices we make. And so there is not a comparison, it's not a true analogy to point to weightlifting and, to the, and compare it to the law of God and to say, you know, the law of God, God doesn't require us to be perfect. When God says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's something that he commands you to do, and if you don't do it, it's because you are disobedient to God and you deserve his judgment and his punishment. This is what the Bible is all about. Does that make sense? And yet so many people think the, the other way. So many people think, you know, God doesn't expect me to be perfect. I'm only human. And they just dismiss their sins. They don't say they're perfect. They just say God doesn't require them to be so. So whatever they fail, whenever they fail to love their neighbor or to love God with all their heart, they don't think they're really morally responsible or in trouble for it, right? The Pharisees in Jesus' day were guilty of holding to this deception. If you were to ask a Pharisee in the first century, do you consider yourself to be perfect? That Pharisee would immediately tell you, no, of course not. I do not think that I'm perfect. That would be proud and arrogant to say so. But if you were to say, well, do you expect to enter the kingdom of heaven? Yes. Because God doesn't require us to be perfect. All he requires us is to do the best that we can. I can't be perfect, says the Pharisee, but to prove my love to God, I'll do what I can. And this is how the little things in religion become so important. You see? Whereas to God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself is really important. Men just dismiss and say, well, we can't be perfect, so what we can do, though, is tithe. Right? That's what I can do. I can see to it that I'm going to do that. They're deceiving themselves. And this is how the little things become so important. And then you start judging other people for not meeting your low standard. And you think you're better. Now, you're not loving God with all your heart, and your neighbor is yourself, and neither are they, but you're tithing, and they're not. And so I'm more religious than they are. I love more God more than they do, right? For not meeting your low standard. Did you know, brothers and sisters, this might come to a shock to many people, but one of the most unloving things you can do to another person is to not hold them to the standard of perfection. Isn't that interesting? One of the most unloving things that you can do to another person is not hold them to the standard that God holds them to. Because if you were to hold them, if you were to look at that person and say, what is required of them before God is perfection, not some low standard of tithing or going to church or reading their Bible certain X amount of hours a day. If you were to hold them to perfection, you would never judge them. Why would you never judge them? Why would you never look down on them if you were to hold them to perfection? Because you know that you're imperfect yourself. When you realize that the standard is perfection and you hold people to it, you don't judge them because now you're seeing as God sees and you realize that we're both sinners here. Maybe our sins are different. We are both not perfect, guilty of breaking the law of God, Guilty of the two greatest commandments of the law. But what happens is when you start holding someone to a standard that's lower, and you start saying, you know what, I'm just going to 
not think about the fact that God requires perfection. I'm not going to think about the fact that the law is all about perfect love. And I'm just going to lower the standards here to some arbitrary standard that I make up that um, unless my spouse or my friend doesn't uh, you know, speak nice to me today or read the Bible a certain amount of times or, or takes the trash out, if they don't meet that standard, then, man, they're going to get my wrath. I'm better than they are in that day. But if they meet that standard, then they're a good person in my eyes. Everything's going to be rosy all the way today, right, if they meet that standard. Now you are doing something unloving because you're not seeing them the way God sees them. You're not holding them to a true standard. And really, I think we do that in order to put ourselves above others, in order to judge others. Isn't it just the case that when we lower the standards, it just seems that people never meet them, right? It seems like we don't want them to meet them. And it just ends up being a disaster. Did you know that the only people, only people who hold others to the standard of perfection show grace to each other? The only people who show grace to one another are those who hold them to the standard of perfection and say, you know what, they're not perfect. They have sinned against God, but so have I. And I want mercy. I'm going to give mercy as well. My life is based upon mercy with God. I'm going to give mercy as well. But when you realize the gospel is not about uh, righteousness coming by works at all, but the gospel is about God sending his son and dying on the cross for our sins and giving us grace that we don't deserve. And you live towards others from that perspective. But that requires you to hold them to perfection. When you don't hold them to perfection, you don't show grace. You get angry when they fail, or you might say, well, maybe they were just having a bad day today, and you excuse their sins. But that only lasts for so long. Pretty soon they really sin, and you don't have any grace for them, right? See, grace is about forgiveness when they really sin. When it's really sin. And according to the Bible, it's really sin. And God has really shown us grace. The problem with not thinking about perfection is that you end up dismissing your sin and you think you're guiltless, even though in reality, number one, you're not listening to God's law at all. Number two, you're not obeying God's law at all, but you're disobeying. And number three, you're dismissing the fact that you're disobeying. That's pretty ugly. And that takes place with Pharisees and self-righteous people. The religious people. You know, we, if we were to ask, if we were to go to God's word and ask this simple question, in the eyes of God, you know, what sinners are in the worst condition of all? And the Bible would say, the self-righteous people, the religious ones, the legalists. Because they're not listening to God's law, they're not obeying it, and they're pretending like they are. All because they're not judging the way God is judging. This is not righteousness that the Pharisees are preaching. And Jesus came, and as we've been seeing throughout the book of Matthew, and especially in this chapter of 23, he's rebuking the Pharisees for not preaching righteousness and not preaching the truth about the law, which is that God requires perfection. Jesus is exposing them concerning this very thing in this chapter. Look at verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And remember, a hypocrite is someone who appears to be one thing, but isn't actually that in reality. You pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Now, such tithing is based upon the law. If you look at Leviticus 27, verse 30, the law commands tithing of your plants and your garden fruits. So the Pharisees were actually doing something that's required in the law here. This isn't an additional tradition of the Pharisees. And you'll notice that Jesus says, you should not leave this undone. But you shouldn't only do this, Jesus is saying. You have omitted the weightier matters of the law. Jesus says this tithing thing is a light thing. There's weightier issues here in the law than you know, tithing a little bit of your mint plant. And that wouldn't have been a very big amount. But they were scrupulous and even measuring just a tiny little bit off of their 
mint leaves. <clears throat> now we're not to think that the Pharisees did not teach judgment, mercy, and faithfulness. That would be incorrect. That would be a stereotype. I, one thing we need to do is we need to eject this stereotype that the Pharisees were like uh, these corrupt ostensibly corrupt sheriff of Nottingham kind of people that when they walked down the road, everyone just ran away because, you know, these guys were coming to steal your money and act, act all religious, but everyone knew they really weren't. No, the Pharisees taught judgment, mercy, and faithfulness. I mean, you can't read the law uh, with one eye open and see that the law talks a lot about doing justice, right? And upholding the widows and, and having just measures and weights and showing mercy and being faithful to God, and faithful to the law. No, they taught these things. The problem is that, not that they did not teach them, but that they did not do them. This is the problem. And you'll notice that he says, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Well, in verse 3, if you go over to verse 3, all, therefore, whatever they bid you to observe, observe and do. But do not do what they do. Jesus doesn't necessarily have a problem here with what they're teaching, per se, because he says they're teaching you, they're, they're binding heavy burdens, and they're putting them on your shoulders, but they're not lifting them at all. What that means is this. The Pharisees would say, you know, we need to be loving, we need to be just, we need to be merciful, we need to be compassionate, we need to tithe, we need to keep the law, we need to not murder, we need to not steal, we need to, not commit, we need to do all these things. But they wouldn't do them at all. And then they dismiss the fact when they wouldn't do it at all. They say, well, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Have you ever heard that out of, out of the same mouth? A religious person will say, you know, we just need to keep the commandments. You ever heard that? Like they'll say, that's a true statement. We need to keep the commandments. And then out of the next breath, they'll say, but, you know, nobody can do it. Nobody's perfect. But we need to keep the commandments, right? We need to do that. And that's what they do. They bind these heavy burdens. And the heavy burdens is the same Greek word as in verse 23, weighty matters. And so the Pharisees did teach people the moral law, but they wouldn't lift it. They would Look at what he says at the end of verse 23. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. They did not keep the weightier matters of the law. Let me give you an example. The Pharisees taught people not to murder, but they were murderers. What is a murderer according to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? If you have hatred or anger towards another person, you're a murderer, you're guilty of hell. Did the Pharisees teach that? No. Now, they, did they teach you're not to murder? You've heard that it said, you shall not murder. So the Pharisees were very clear with the people, you're not allowed to murder. That's against the rules. But if you were to say, did you know that murder involves being angry with your brother? And they'd say, well, nobody's going to be that perfect. Come on, right? No, you can't expect us to be that perfect. God does not expect us to be that perfect. Well, as long as we just, you know, and they lower the standard, don't murder. And Jesus is saying, you teach men not to murder, but you're murderers. You, you bind these heavy burdens and put them on people. Don't murder. That's good that you say that. But you don't even lift it with one finger. And you dismiss your murdering. Or they say, we are not to commit adultery. Remember, they were the first to grab stones when they caught the woman in adultery, they weren't just concerned about tithing. This woman committed adultery. The law of Moses says she's to be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? And he says, yeah, it's true. She's to be stoned. But he who has no sin cast the first stone. No sin is required here. No sin. They might have said, no sin. <laughs> well, no, God doesn't re expect us to be perfect. He does. See, you teach people not to commit adultery. But don't you know that looking with lust is, is committing adultery in your heart? Well, if that's the standard, nobody's going to make it, Jesus. So they teach people not to commit adultery, a good and true moral commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, but they don't lift it with one of their fingers. Or they teach people to love their neighbor, but not their enemy. And Jesus says, well, you know, if you want to love your enemy, if you want to love your neighbor, that includes loving your enemy. Well, in that case, no one's going to do it. You got it. So the Pharisees were teaching the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, you know, they teach you the Ten Commandments. Whatever they tell you to do, do it. But don't do like they do. 
because they teach it and they don't do it. They don't really keep the weightier matters of the law. Don't do like they do. And don't think that you're an obedient person without perfection. Verse 24 summarizes the problem in verse 23. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You see, they dismissed their, their sins thinking God doesn't require them to be perfect. So if you look with lust or if you get angry, it's okay. It's, you're only human and it's impossible to be perfect. They dismissed that, but they took great care to not sin against the lighter commandments, which they figured they could do. So, of course, if uh, they saw somebody drinking some wine with a little mosquito in it, that's what a gnat is, they might say, that person is so unjust. How dare they not love God enough to take that mosquito out? Because the law says you're not supposed to consume gnats. It's true. Gnats are unclean. It's true. Now, if they were judging by perfection and they saw someone drinking that, they might not judge him and say, oh my goodness, this person is so bad and I'm so much better than they are. Because they'd realize they're not perfect either. But they would take care to make sure that no gnats were drunk or no gnats were in their food. They were not to be eaten. Of course, a camel is also an unclean uh, animal in the law, forbidden to be eaten. And Jesus uses a grotesque analogy here to reveal a spiritual truth. There's the, the Pharisees are swallowing camels. That's grotesque, isn't it? Imagine that. You're swallowing, you strain out a gnat. You don't, you don't want to uh, consume a gnat, but you will readily consume a camel. Now the Pharisees probably are, looked at him like he had two heads. What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> But Jesus is speaking from a higher level of perspective, from God's perspective, from the perspective of the truth, from the perspective of righteousness and perfection. And he says, in reality, you're swallowing camels. In reality, this is how ridiculous you look to God. I mean, this is what God, when God looks at you from heaven, he sees you taking great care to not swallow a mosquito, and then you swallow a big camel. That's ridiculous. And brothers and sisters, every legalist is a camel swallower. Every legalist is a camel swallower. A legalist is someone who doesn't judge by perfection, who takes care to do all the little things, and looks down on others, and God looks at them and says, you are swallowing camels. Right? You're not even keeping the weightier matters of the law. You're not even listening to my law. You're not even loving me or your neighbor like I command you, and you're dismissing your sins, and then you're judging someone for what? Drinking that or eating this or not doing that? What? <laughs> Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Blind guides, he calls them. Blind guides because if you follow them, they'll keep you out of the kingdom of God. Because they make, they make you think that you are obedient to the law or that they are obedient to the law when they're really not. They're blind guides. Blind guides will not help you get into the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, if you... If you want to be saved and enter eternal life and go into the kingdom of God, then beware of the Pharisees and the Pharisees uh, today. Beware of anyone who does not teach you that God requires perfection. You meet someone like that, you run away from them as a spiritual guide. You do not listen to them as a spiritual guide. Because they will lead the blind. They are blind leaders of the blind, and they'll both fall into a ditch. Verse 25. Verse 25 to verse 28 is saying the same thing. It's about having a good outward appearance, but having a bad inward reality. A good outward appearance and a bad inward reality. In verse 25, Jesus is not speaking literally. O oh, to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. He's not speaking literally here. He's not talking about their, them cleaning dishes. Certainly when the Pharisees cleaned their dishes, they wouldn't have just cleaned the outside and disregarded 
if the inside was full of nastiness. But what he's pointing out to here is their much regard for appearing to be righteous before men, but neglecting actually being righteous. The fact is the Pharisees were sinners, full of sin, full of lust, full of anger, full of extortion and greed. But because they dismissed those things as, well, I'm just human and God doesn't expect me to be that perfect. It's okay as long as I'm not sinning against what I'm able to do. And so they just dismissed those sins, disqualified them, and didn't think that that was really even a problem. But they're full of sins in the eyes of God because he does require that righteousness to be perfect. And yet then they made sure that they looked like they were keeping all the lower standards in the eyes of man so that they would appear righteous before men. This is what they're doing spiritually, and Jesus is pointing out to them. I mean, it seems absurd. If they were doing that in the physical, if they were actually cleaning a dish on the outside and leaving the inside full of disgusting stuff, that would be ridiculous, right? Everyone would think that's stupid. And, and that's his point. He's saying, this is what you're doing in, in the spiritual realm. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. Don't you notice a theme whenever Jesus says a parable or gives an analogy of what the Pharisees are doing? It's the stupidest, most ridiculous things. Now, they never saw themselves doing that. But that's the way God sees it. That's the way God sees legalism and, and what the Pharisees are doing. That's the way God sees this idea that you can be right with God and not be perfect. He says it's totally ridiculous. Jesus lets them know the priority in verse 26. Uh, really be righteous, and then it won't matter about taking care of the outside. Men will see that you are righteous if you really are righteous on the inside. What's on the outside won't be fake. Reality first is what Jesus is saying. In verse 27, Jesus continues the same thought. He points out the way that men see see the Pharisees. And this from the lips of Jesus is one of the most important uh, places where we can learn about what the Pharisees were like. The Pharisees looked beautiful in verse 27. If we were to go back in time and and uh, if we were to look at the Pharisees, we'd say, wow, wow, those guys, they look beautiful. Not physically, obviously. <laughs> Maybe some of them did. <laughs> they look religiously beautiful. They look spiritually beautiful. In verse 28, you look outwardly righteous. You look righteous in the eyes of men if you're looking from a lower perspective. Yes, if righteousness is not perfection, the Pharisees have won. They've got it. And they're your guides. You follow them. But if you see from God's perspective and you see through this bogus appearance, and they actually are not beautiful at all, but revolting to God, isn't it? What an amazing extreme, eh? Beautiful to man, revolting to God. That's a shocking thing, isn't it? So what men think is beautiful, Christians, we ought to think is revolting, right? What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Isn't that interesting? And so Christianity should be a little shocking to the world, right? It should be foolishness to the world. What are you talking about? That's so good and right and beautiful. And we say, no, it's revolting and disgusting. He says that they're like whitewashed sepulchers. Now, Jesus would have been able to point to those at that exact time. We know that the Passover was just a couple days away. And about a month before the Passover, in those days, the Jews would whitewash the graves, uh, the graves of usually the poor people because they were often hidden if they weren't whitewashed, along the route to Jerusalem. Because in the Passover, uh, people would come to Jerusalem for the celebration. Now the problem is, if you walk over a grave, or if you touch a grave, according to the law, you're defiled. And nobody wants to come all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover and be defiled, right? And if you come defiled, you'll defile other people and you'll ruin the whole Passover. So, the Jewish people would actually whitewash the graves. And so that when you're walking, you would notice them and know to stay clear of the graves. So what's interesting about this analogy is that they were whitewashed in order to actually stay clear of them. But of course, Jesus was highlighting the fact that when a grave is whitewashed, it actually has a beautiful appearance. 
It has a beautiful appearance. It looks nice. But do you know what's inside that grave? He says, full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. You've got to understand, to a Hebrew mind, death is like, death is the most unclean thing imaginable. And a dead body and bones, that's the, as far away from God as you can get. Because death represents sin and judgment and wrath and separation from God. You come near those things and you're defiled. The beautiful appearance hides the hideous truth that lays inside. The average Israelite did not feel oppressed by the Pharisees as if they were like corrupt police. They were loved. It would be the, uh, the failures to keep the, the low standard in Israel who would feel judged by them. But Jesus calls them out for who they really are so that the people might know. They're hypocrites. Look at verse 28. You appear outwardly righteous unto men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy. That is, you appear to be one thing and you're actually another. And here's, here would have been a, a pretty stinging accusation against the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. In the King James, it says iniquity, but in the Greek, it's the word anomia. Lawlessness. The Greek word for law is namos, and you put an A before it, and you got no law or lawlessness. He basically is saying to these Pharisees, and what are the Pharisees all about, ostensibly? The law. <laughs> okay? These guys are the champions of the law. They talk about the law when they get up in the morning, when they eat their breakfast, and they go to bed. They dream about the law. They talk about the law. They teach the law. They think they're honoring the law. And Jesus, in one word, says, you guys are lawless. There's not a drop of law in you. What you're talking about isn't the law of Moses at all. You're hypocrites because you aren't what, you, what men think you are. You aren't what you even think you are. And you're lawless because you don't even listen to the law and you don't even obey the law. And then you dismiss your sins. You're totally lawless. I mean, when you think of the word lawless, what do you think of? Do you think of someone who's out there sinning up a storm and basically admits that he's a sinner? Is that what you think of lawless? That's what most people think of lawless. Someone who's lawless is someone who's just sinning up a storm and doesn't, and doesn't care about the law. Right? And there's a lot of people like that. But those people typically admit that they're no good. Right? Jesus, however, points the finger at the religious guys who are teaching the commandments, the religious people of their day, and says, these are the lawless ones. If you admit you're a sinner, that's not lawlessness. If you admit you're a sinner. You might say, okay, here's the law and what it requires, but I'm guilty. At least you're seeing the law for what it is, and you're saying, I'm guilty. But if you say you're not guilty, if you say you're okay with God, if you're not even listening to law, then your law is, the law is not even in your life. It's not even in the equation, right? You're not even seeing the law. What are you looking at? You're looking at something else. You're not even looking at God's law at all. And so this shows how Jesus is always speaking from the true and higher perspective of the judgment of God. God's view versus man's view. God's view is perfection, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbors yourself perfectly. Man's view is, no, you're not to be expected to do that. It's just a lower standard. And Jesus, from God's perspective, says you're lawless. And to man, that would be shocking. You've got to understand, the Pharisees are shocked by these words. And in verse 29 to 33, this next charge of Jesus really stirs up Jesus' ire. And this is one of the most interesting, I think, of these woes. Because... Jesus says, Woe to you, scribe, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And you say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And brothers and sisters, we must understand that the Pharisees really believed that. Right? They really believed that. They weren't just saying that and then went home and they you know, we really fooled that crowd today good, didn't we? We just hated those prophets back in the day, but we just go out and put on a good show. No. They really 
believed were different than our fathers. And we don't approve of what they did. And if we were in those days, we would have done differently. That's the way that they thought. And so for Jesus now to come in and to say, you guys are one with your fathers. They kill the prophets, you build their tombs, everybody's happy. Would have been extremely shocking for them to hear. And in verse 31, someone might accuse Jesus of taking their words too far. Look what Jesus says after this in verse 31. Because in verse 30 they say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. That's what they thought. That's what they said. Now Jesus says in verse 31, And one might accuse them of taking their words too far. Wherefore you be a witnesses unto yourselves, you are the children of those who killed the prophets. Of course, Jesus is accusing them here. And you might say, oh, slow down here, Jesus. They didn't mean that, right? You're taking their words. When they said our fathers, they didn't mean that they were, you know, of the same spiritual stock as them. They just meant our fathers physically. You're, you're going too far with this thing. But Jesus is always seeing at a deeper level at a true level. And he says, oh, yes, they are your fathers and how true that is. Truer than you even realize. Yes, they are your fathers, but not just physically, but spiritually so. They are your fathers. And Jesus, once again, speaks at the higher level, shocking to men who are only looking from a lower perspective. And when he says, fill up the measure of your fathers, by the persecution that they bring to Christ and to the apostles, they prove that they are of the same stock as their fathers, right? It's interesting that verse 32 is actually a, an imperative. It's a command. He tells them to do it. Fill up the measure of your fathers. Do it. Basically, like what he said to Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly, right? Jesus knows what these guys are going to do to him in a, in a day or two. Jesus knows what they're going to do. So he says, do what you're going to do. Fill up the measure of your fathers. They've been pouring their lawlessness into the glass of lawlessness. You just keep filling up that measure till it gets to the full. Do what you're going to do and prove my point that you are of the same stock as your fathers. And here we come into contact with one of the most important principles in the Bible, and I hope you can see this this morning. Because this is one of the most important principles in Scripture. And it shows us how God sees, as opposed to how man sees. Our actions, brothers and sisters, prove what we approve of. Our actions prove what we approve of. Turn with me to Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. And look at verse 47. This is the parallel passage in Luke. Verse 47. Luke eleven forty-seven. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you what? That you allow or approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchres. What Jesus is now saying to them explicitly is, you approve what they did. Now, what did I just say earlier? Did they approve what they did consciously? No. The, the Pharisees did not consciously approve what they did. Very important principle to see here. That God can look at your heart and God can know that you approve of something even if you're too stupid to see that you approve of it. Right? Based on your actions. God can say, you approve of this sin and by all that you understand and by all that you're conscious of, you don't. And God speaks from a true and higher perspective and say, this is what you really are. And you say, no, I'm not. I don't consciously approve of this. The Pharisees would have said, we don't approve of the killing of these guys. He says, you do. 
and you prove it by your actions. Don't be fooled by what you're conscious of because you are not a good judge of yourself, right? A lot of people think, I'm going to heaven because I'm a really good person because I don't approve of bad stuff, right? They consciously don't think they do. And God in the scripture says what? Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways, poison of asps under them. They say, no, it's not. God says, yes, it is. This is true of you. This is the truth about who you are. You are a sinner, and you are this way in my sight, even if you consciously don't even think you are, because you prove what you are by your actions. You prove what you approve of by your actions. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And in light of the fact that the Pharisees are being accused of Jesus of approving of the killing of the prophets, even though the Pharisees themselves do not consciously approve of the uh, killing of the prophets, consider this passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. <clears throat> Although maybe we should start in verse 28 even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, and now listen to verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that those who commit such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they have pleasure in those that do them. And the word in the Greek here, when it says that they have pleasure in those that do them, is the very same word that is used in Luke 11:48, when he says, you allow the deeds of your father. It is the word sunudakio. And it means to think well of together or to applaud, to approve of. And Jesus uses that word in Luke 11. You approve of what your fathers did. They say, no, we didn't. And how many people here in this world do you think, if you gave this list and you said, you know what God says about mankind? They don't only commit these things, but they approve of them. And how many people do you think would say, I don't approve of these things? How many people do you think would say, no, I, I don't approve of, uh, you know, being an inventor of an evil thing and fornication and covetousness. I don't approve of it. Well, the Pharisees didn't approve of it either, right? The Pharisees weren't consciously approving of the killing of the prophets. And Jesus called them out for what the truth was. And God calls out the truth here. And he says, mankind, each and every single one of us here, you approve of these things, don't you? You approve of them. You say, no, I don't consciously do so. You do. And how do we know that you do? Because you do them. Because you do them. And look at chapter 2 of Romans. Because Paul now is addressing this person who's just like the Pharisees, who is actually judging those who do these things. He says, I, I, the, the person in chapter 2 is saying, these are bad people who are doing these things. These are wrong. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judges. For wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you that judges doest the same things. See, now he's addressing someone who looks at sinners and says, That's bad. And, I, and believe me, people who do that consciously think that's bad. Right? They consciously disapprove of it. They consciously say, No, 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 that's really bad. And he says, You condemn yourself whenever you do that. You condemn yourself when you do it because you do the same things. You too are disobedient to God's law. You too do not love God with all your heart. You too do not love your neighbor as yourself. You too commit sins all the time, don't you? And look at verse 2. You know how we've been talking about seeing from a higher perspective and seeing from a lower perspective, the higher being God's and the lower being man's? 
the higher being judging from perfection and the truth of righteousness, the lower being judging from the lesser standard. God doesn't require you to be perfect. Well, here's what Paul says in verse 2. We are certain that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who commit such things. That's basically the higher standard right there. Paul's saying God judges correctly. Men are wrong in their judgment. Men are guilty, vile, and worthy of death. Lawlessness when they think they're lawful. Hateful when they think they're loving. Disobedient when they think they're obedient. Dishonoring to the prophets when they think they're honoring to the prophets. And hateful of God at the very time when they think that they're most loving towards God. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. Have you accepted God's judgment against yourself? The Pharisees, it says, didn't. They didn't accept God's judgment against themselves. Have you accepted the fact that you're a sinner? That doesn't just mean you've committed a few bad deeds. It means you are not a good person. And you have not obeyed God. And everything the Bible has to say about wicked men is true about you. And that you deserve the wrath of God. Have you accepted the truth of the judgment of God against yourselves? Do you trust that God judges correctly when he says these things about you in the word? Or will you foolishly say, nah, Jesus, you're wrong. I don't consciously think like that. And you realize on judgment day how true he was and how foolishly blind you were because the real problem was you just didn't understand what was going on. Because in a couple days from now, you're going to crucify the Messiah. The Pharisees put Jesus to death and the apostles. And the whole time they're thinking, we're not like our fathers. And they're doing the exact same thing. They're so blind. Don't be like them. Because let's go back to Matthew 23. Jesus' last, a thing that he says here in the last verse of our passage is, you serpents, you generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? How can anyone escape the damnation of hell when they're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and they don't even know it and they're blind? Do you want to know how to go to hell? A certain way of going to hell, of getting yourself into a situation where Jesus himself would say, how can you escape? Be like a Pharisee, self-righteous legalists. Lower the standard. Think you're okay. Trust your own consciousness. And the Son of God himself will say, wow, your situation is really looking bad. We think, we think uh, the one who have, who have the worst situation in life, the ones whose conditions are the worst, are the tax collectors and the harlots. Now, their situation is bad, but not as bad as this. Because Jesus never said to them, how can you escape the damnation of hell, right? In fact, those people were in a better position to realize the truth. If they came along, if Jesus came along and said to a harlot, you're a sinner, you got me. <laughs> but you come to a Pharisee, you're a sinner? No, I'm not. I don't approve of those things. God doesn't require perfection. How can you escape the damnation of hell when you call dark light and light dark, when you call sweet bitter and bitter sweet, when you call good evil and evil good, when you've got it all backwards? And that's the devil's work, brothers and sisters, to distort man's understanding away from the truth, to bring our souls to destruction and ruin. The devil's work is to distort your understanding. And Jesus identifies these guys with the devil in this passage by saying, you're serpents. An echo of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the serpent came into the world to corrupt men from God. And they're the children of serpent of the serpent, he says here. Their true father, the devil, who's distorted their understanding. And the good news here, in closing this morning, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
came into the world to deliver us from the works of the devil. And he delivers us from the works of the devil by bringing us salvation through his death on the cross and by bringing us understanding and light and truth and opening our eyes to see reality and not the delusion of the devil who comes so tactfully and wily and subtly and he comes in, the devil, looking religious and looking thoughtful and he pretends to be righteous and he pretends that he's honoring God and the law and all the while he's making you worse and worse and worse and leading your soul to destruction, fooling you and thinking you're okay. And Jesus comes and he's present even today to teach you the truth, brothers and sisters, about the law and about God and about your condition and about your sin, about righteousness and the righteousness that God requires. As we sang about today and as Brad was saying, God is holy and different and in order for us to be with him, that holy God requires perfection. Jesus taught us that because that's the truth. Jesus shows us that the law is indeed weighty and that will crush you as a sinner. Not because God is mean and telling you to do something that is impossible and then punishing you for it, but because we are evil and the law exposes that. The law simply shows us the truth that we're evil. This law is good and spiritual and wonderful, and we would all say amen to it. The law is awesome, and yet it condemns us all. In love, God gave us the law to show us the truth of who we are, sinners. Jesus taught us the truth about the law. And on the cross, Jesus lifted what? Jesus lifted not 580 pounds like the Iranian Hercules, a small feat in comparison. Jesus lifted the inestimable weight of God's broken law and he took all of your sin, all of it, on it to himself and the full meaning of it, understanding the wrath that they deserve, he bore our sins in his body on the tree so that you and I would not have to go to hell. Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins by giving his life for us on the cross. Have you thought about that today? Have you thought about that today, that God sent his son and Jesus came 2,000 years ago? and did that for you. And friends, that is how much God loves you. Just want to tell you that this morning. God loves you so much, even though you don't listen to his law and you don't obey it. God loves this world so much. And he loves you so much that he's not just going to sit in heaven and cry about things. He loves you so much. He came to save you so that none of us have to go to hell. As the prophet Ezekiel says, why, why should you die? God has provided the way of salvation for you. There's not a reason why any one of us here should go to hell. It would be your own folly if you do. He came into the world to save you because he loves you that much and he shows us how powerful he is. And just as a weightlifter lifts up that huge weight, if you've ever seen an Olympic weightlifter, and then when he's done lifting it up, in triumph, what does he do? He tosses it on the ground with a bit of scorn, perhaps. And so Christ, having dealt with our sins once and for all on the cross, he threw them behind his back in scorn, never to reappear again unto those who believe. When you've been forgiven through the blood of Christ and when you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you've realized that you're a guilty sinner and that there's no hope for you in the law, there's no hope for you in being saved by the law because God requires perfection and you are not that. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're saved by his grace and your sins are taken away once and forever through his shed blood on the cross and you are perfect in Christ, brothers and sisters, you can guarantee your sins will never be brought up before you again. Jesus will never have to lift that weight ever again, right? He's never going to have to say, oh, Ailey, you sinned again this week. Okay, I'm going to have to go lift a couple dumbbells today in the gym. I mean, I did the big lifting on the cross, but now I'm going to have to do a little bit of the. No. He lifted it once for all, and he threw it behind his back. And if you've put your trust in Christ, it is finished. Your sins are gone. Because Jesus, the strongest man in the world, 
He is mighty to save, and he saves and lifts the greatest burden of all, right? He is the true weightlifter. You see, the way to have peace with God and to have the weight of your sins lifted off your shoulders is not by taking the Pharisees' route and lightening the weight. It's not by saying, you know what, God doesn't require you to lift 580 pounds. He just requires you to lift 200 pounds. Oh, okay, so I'll have peace if I lift 200 pounds. That is not the way to have peace. The way to have peace is to realize God requires perfection and to entrust it to God, entrust it to Christ to lift it for you and to do the work for you. And everyone who has done that has found comfort and peace. Amen? Every Christian can say, I have found peace not by lowering the standard, but by accepting it for what it is and taking my refuge in Jesus Christ. In perfection, through Christ, we have peace with God and with one another when we learn to look at each other through perfection as well. We'll then be able to show grace to each other, just as God has shown grace to us by providing Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us therefore see the righteousness of God from his perspective, and not from man's, and trust Jesus to carry all the weight of the perfection that God himself requires. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these true and cutting words that Jesus spoke, and we pray that you'd help us to remember them, and we thank you that they can guide us today. Lord, will you please help people to not be deceived by Satan and his brood of vipers who appear beautiful and righteous on the outside and not be fooled by him. Help us to notice when men are lowering the standard and they're full of lawlessness. Help us to detect it, Lord, when your law is not being honored for the perfection that it is and therefore your son is being nullified and his death on the cross. And as Christians, Lord, may you encourage us with this wonderful truth that you have saved us by your grace and forgiven us of all of our sins and we stand righteous not by the works of the law, but by the death of your Son. Help us to see that on a daily basis and learn to live toward one another with that perspective as well. Thank you for these precious words we read this morning. Please change us, Lord, and work in our hearts so that we can look and see from your perspective. And we praise you and give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.